Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 129. This week, we will conclude the interview with Jonathan Bowen, co-author of the book The Turing Guide, an immense definitive reference to the life, works, and legacy of Alan Turing. Jonathan is a fellow of the British Computer Society, a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, emeritus professor at London South Bank University, an adjunct professor or visiting professor of many universities, including King's College London, and winner of the IEE Charles Babbage Premium Award. His study and research is in the area of formal methods, but we were talking about his knowledge of Alan Turing. And last week we talked about what Turing meant to him, how he started researching connections between Turing, who was a Cambridge man, I have to get that in there, and Oxford, where Jonathan was a senior researcher at the University Computing Laboratory, and where, in 2012, he co-organized a celebration of Alan Turing's centenary called Turing's Worlds. Let's get back to the interview. There's just no other historical figure that I can think of that would so obviously have made such a great contribution to human progress had their life not been cut short. And yet, we can't know what that is. This is the frustrating thing. To know what he would have done, you'd have to be Alan Turing. We clearly can't know what that is. If you try fantasizing about where he would have gone, you've talked about the quantum computing. Was it quantum computing or was it quantum physics? Well, I think he was looking at the quantum physics, but I can imagine him going on to quantum computing from that with his background. Mm. I think he would have put two together. So I think we would have advanced. I think that was the next thing he was thinking about, nothing really written down. So, wow. you know, I predict the next paper would have been another brilliant one on quantum effects and maybe predicting quantum computing, but we don't know. But he's the sort of person who would have put two and two together. Mm. With all his expertise at computability and so on, he would have realized that quantum effects have computing aspects to them. And so I think that's an area where I think we could have been a decade ahead if he had, had lived, for instance. And yet quantum computing is so nascent right now that one imagines that he might have been thinking of these things and being intensely frustrated that they were 30 years away from being realized physically, although maybe they would have happened, as you say, sooner, thanks to his influence. And we had 40 years of the von Neumann architecture of computers being unchallenged because no one came up with anything else other than recently neuromorphic chips and then quantum computing. And do you think Turing might have pushed the edge on that and said, look, you're taking this Turing computer thing too literally. I never meant you yes. to go out and build that and nothing else. Well, it was certainly his Turing machine was just a mathematical concept. It's not, <laughs> yes, he's very incredibly inefficient. He just tried to produce the simplest possible machine for his mm. uh, purposes. Von Neumann, although also another brilliant mathematician, did something a bit more practical with the von Neumann machine. They're essentially the same. They've got the same Mm -hmm. computing power and so on. But his is more practical with the memory and so on. I mean, Turing obviously realized that because he went on to design computers at 
NPL with the ACE computer and so on. So he wasn't going to build a Turing machine. Obviously, people have done that mm. since then, just to show that you can. I mean, there's even a brilliant one of the Game of Life, Conway's Game of Life, with a Turing machine mm. in it, because they're both equivalent. The Game of Life got exactly the same amount of computing power. So I find those sort of things interesting, where you can actually embed the Turing machine mm. within the Game of Life, which is pretty amazing. Exactly. And it strikes me there's this symmetry in that the two concepts that are most associated with his name, that his name is part of the title, bookend computer science. We have the Turing machine, which defines computation itself, basically makes computer science possible. And then we have the Turing test, wasn't called that perhaps when he was around, but it is now, which defines the point at which the boundary between computers and humans crossed. There's kind of beautiful symmetry to that there. Talking about the Turing test, it obviously plays a huge part in the conversation about AI right now. How much did it mean to Turing? Well, I think when he wrote that paper, he was just having a lot of fun. <laughs> if you listen to he, he was talking to Gandhi at the time, Robin Gandhi, who was his, well, one of his very few PhD students, but also a friend and colleague. And Gandhi writes as he was reading out parts of the paper and with a big smile on his face. And I can imagine Turing doing that. It's quite a playful paper in parts. And it's a philosophical paper, so very different from his computability paper, for instance. So I think Turing obviously could foresee these things that other people couldn't see, but he was doing it in a playful way at the time. Mm. I mean, he thought that we'd be thinking about thinking machines by the end of the 20th century is one of his things that he thought, which perhaps has been a bit delayed. I mean, now I think we're getting there with machine learning and so on. Mm. I think we had a great period of doldrums with the AI where we had logic programming and so on, and that made some advances in the 80s. And then 90s, it's all sort of nobody really got anywhere until the 21st century when people sort of just let things rip with neural networks and so on. And I think we were trying to be too much control freaks with AI during the 20th century. And once we let the AI just sort of do its own thing, then suddenly we've had huge advances. So perhaps we should have done that earlier, but obviously maybe mm. we would have done it earlier if Turing had been around. Again, why do you think that he wrote that paper and explored that so much? It is, as you say, a different tone. It's philosophical. It doesn't exactly advance the science of the mathematics of computers at that point. It's speculating about something that people still think could be an unknown distance in the future. And it opens you up to ridicule, even now. So why did he do it? Well, I don't think he'd worry about ridicule. <laughs> I think he'd probably <laughs> quite enjoy that. I think he'd been thinking about it since the Second World War with talking to Shannon and so on. He'd had these ideas. They'd been floating around in his mind. As he said, he wrote some things down whilst at Bletchley Park. I would imagine that he'd think, right, I just need to get these out into the public domain. So it's recorded. And then you have this brilliant paper that starts things off. Hmm. What was the reception to that? Was there a reaction? Well, I guess things like John McCarthy presumably read it and thought <laughs> there's something to this. But I don't think there was widespread. None of Turing's ideas took off immediately in that sense. Certainly the morphogenesis that he also worked on with theoretical biology, looking at patterns, that was written and uh, nobody took any notice for a decade or two. So I think that was a bit similar with the AI paper. Perhaps that was slightly more advanced because of the meeting in the 50s that started off AI and so on. 
he was the sort of scientist who would decide, right, I'm not doing this because I've been given a grant to write it. <laughs> I'm doing it because I'm a scientist and I want to write it. And certainly, you know, his 1936 paper was like that. He just got inspired by lectures by Newman and started thinking about it, wrote the paper in an entirely novel way. Fortunately, Newman realised this is a novel paper. Other people who read it may have said this is a load of rubbish. He was just lucky to have Newman reading it and then saying this is a worthwhile piece of work and getting it published or helping get it published. So and I think the work on morphogenesis, similarly, he wasn't being paid to work on morphogenesis. It was just some ideas he was having. I mean, he was in, in this club called the Ratio Club, which met, and it was mainly young scientists. And I think that was probably where he started to get the ideas on the morphogenesis, for instance. I suspect the machine intelligence ideas must have been swilling around at Bletchley Park. And I think probably the discussions with Shannon would have helped a lot because he would have found somebody else who could actually discuss that sort of thing. I'm just trying to think who at Bletchley Park would actually really discuss that sort of area. And Shannon and Bill Labs is certainly the person I can think of where you've been able to sound off ideas and get interesting ideas back. And I think the morphogenesis, you know, the ratio club, he could have done that. And as you say, some of these ideas must have gotten back to McCarthy because two years later at Dartmouth, they thought that they could create something that would pass the Turing test, not using those words, but yes. other words equivalent to that, that summer, which turned out to be ambitious and too ambitious. Talking about getting paid, what was he paid for? Well, at Bletchley Park, he was paid for... <laughs> Right, but after that, yeah. After after that, he worked worked at the National Physical Laboratory, basically to design a computer, which he did. But the problem there was, compared to the wartime, where in wartime, you know, things needed to be done, money could be provided. I mean, we saw the very dramatic version in the imitation game. Well, it wasn't quite as dramatic as that, but basically, you know, it could go all the way to Churchill and he'd say, yes, this needs money <laughs> and money would be poured in. National Physical Laboratory, well, it goes back to normal peacetime style where there isn't much money around. And I think Turing got fed up there because he was battling against the admin. I'm sure he hated admin, as many academics do. And in the end, he went on the sabbatical to Cambridge with a part-completed design for the ACE and never came back because he was then offered a job up in Manchester by Max Newman, who by then moved there. And they already had a computer, the Manchester baby. So he went there to help them write with the software side of it. He didn't actually design the Manchester computer at all. So, you know, he was paid by these fairly academic places. I mean, NPL is a research establishment. Manchester, he was being paid not as a lecturer, but uh, to do help with the software on the Manchester computer. So he was paid by them for that kind of work and then came out with things like the imitation game paper in his spare time? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's like uh, Tim Berners-Lee invented the web in his spare time. If <laughs> You know the story with him. Similarly, he went to his boss and he was meant to be doing things for CERN and he said, I'd, you know, I'd like to invent the web. Not quite like that. <laughs> and his boss essentially said, well, I can give you three months to do it. <laughs> go away and do it. Well, I think Turing didn't even bother asking for the time to do it. I think that's the nice thing about academia, that you can go away and do things. If you read about Crick and Watson, you know, in academia, to do anything interesting, it's very important to be slightly underemployed. Well, Turing was slightly underemployed because you know, he could work on the software, the Manchester computer, and 
write things that generated music and so on, and uh, think about chess and, and so on. But then also he could think about anything he wanted. So he was thinking about machine intelligence and wrote that. He was allowed to join the Ratio Club, which was only for people who professors were not allowed. So fortunately, he was only a reader, which is the sort of associate professor level at Manchester. So he was never full professor, even at Manchester, which may be a good thing because that meant he was at the Ratio Club talking to younger scientists and getting some interesting ideas there. And not getting paid for working on theoretical biology either, by the sound of it, yet he found time for that too. Do you know what triggered his interest in that? Well, I think, as I said, the Ratio Club. I mean, again, there's not much written down about the Ratio Club, but it was for academics, not at professor level, so younger academics, just coming together to discuss interesting ideas. It was interdisciplinary, so it wasn't all computer science or mathematicians, or it was general science. And so I think discussions there, people would uh, spark his ideas. Again, we don't know exactly how because it's not written down, but I think that's where it would have been originally generated from. Maybe his ideas on quantum was also from that club as well. There's just so much opportunity here for anyone who's got talent for writing alternate history science fiction to speculate on encounters between Turing and Einstein and, well, all kinds of things. Ray Kurzweil has this rather unique view, not totally unique, but relatively unique view that artificial intelligence is eventually going to evolve into beings that possess every characteristic that we value in humans, the ones we also traditionally say set us apart from computers like compassion and humor and curiosity. He says eventually that AI will have those things as well. In Kurzweil's case, eventually equates to about 25 years from now. That's the unique part. But timeline aside, do you think Turing would agree that AI would eventually get to that level of equality or even superseding humans at the game of humanity? Yes, I mean, I think AI is probably not necessarily going to be human-like. It can do lots of things that humans can't do. You know, we can already fake people's faces in films and so on using AI techniques. I mean, AI surpassed things that humans can do. Humans can still do things that AI can't do. So personally, I think AI is going to go off and do interesting things that are not necessarily able to be done by humans. Maybe it's going to do things that we don't even understand. I don't think we're, mm-hmm. uh, we're there yet. I think what well, Turing certainly thought about it in human terms with the Turing test. So he was thinking that they'd be imitating humans. But I think he would have developed his ideas and thought beyond humans, maybe if he'd lived longer, he would have developed his ideas. Because, you know, the Turing test is quite old-fashioned now, thinking you have to just pretend to be a human. Mm-hmm. I mean, to pretend to be a human, you have to be able to not be able to multiply very quickly <laughs> other things which right. computers can do very quickly anyway. So you actually have to downgrade yourself <laughs> to pretend to be a human, as well as trying to upgrade yourself in, in other areas. So I think probably Turing was thinking maybe along human terms of the time, but I think he would have developed his ideas as things went on. It seems to be more taking a pot shot at philosophical stances that there's something unique to human thinking that can only be instantiated within wetware, within biological neurons. And Turing saying, look, if you except that it could be possible somewhere else, then you need a way of telling that. And the only way that you can tell is by what it does. If you 
are not restricted to some chauvinism about what it has to be made of. Do you think he was trying to convince someone of that philosophically? Well, I think he was working around those sort of areas. I mean, since then, Penrose has developed Turing's ideas and thought that there are quantum effects happening in brains, and that's why we can do certain things. You have a spark of something, maybe that's a quantum effect. And maybe that's something Turing would have thought about before Penrose, <laughs> if he'd lived on with his ideas that he was thinking about quantum. You know, it's just amazing what he was thinking about at that time, given where they were then. And as things developed around him, I'm sure he'd develop his ideas with quantum developing and so on. So I think we have to accept he was living in times when there wasn't much computing power, and it's amazing he could think outside the box. I think he realized that it was all going to be exponential, like Moore's law. We were going to have doubling every 18 months or something, things you can do. So I think he certainly sort of maybe extrapolated on that, maybe not explicitly, but he thought, right, computers are going to have a huge amount of memory and a huge amount of computing power. What could you do with that? Hmm. I mean, consciousness, yes, is another interesting area. This, For me, as a mere computer scientist, consciousness is the one thing <laughs> that is inexplicable. <laughs> I'm seeing you there. I believe you're conscious. I'm sitting here. Thank I you. think I'm conscious. But, you know, what makes us conscious? It's very difficult to know, isn't it? Everything else you can sort of explain with physics and other phenomena, you know, chemistry and so on. But how does consciousness happen? Well, obviously a philosophical question, and I'm not a philosopher, so I, I can't right. answer. But that's the one conundrum, I think, underneath all this. Maybe a computer will be able to fake consciousness, but then you don't know if it's fake or if it's real. What is your current area of research, and to what extent does that overlap with Turing's interests? Well, I guess I'm now retired formally, but like all academics, I keep doing things. So although I worked a lot in formal methods, which is quite mathematical, working on doing software, for, for instance, after I officially retired, I worked on air traffic control. So I used formal methods for that, which I'm not allowed to tell you much because I've uh, signed my non-disclosure agreement. But fortunately, I don't know many of the secrets anyway. Certainly, that was an interesting area to be working in. And then since then, I've got more and more interested in actually just digital culture in general. Each year I work on a conference called the Electronic Visualization and the Arts Conference. So at the moment, I really love doing interdisciplinary things. So I love connecting areas together, which may not be obviously connectable. I mean, I always think, I guess perhaps like Turing, if you're writing a paper in computer science, well, you ought to be able to write it yourself. But if you're writing a paper in something that's connecting with some other area, well, you need somebody in that area who knows enough about it to bring that in. You need to be able to talk to each other enough to actually come up with something interesting combining those two interests. And then you've got something that neither one of you could have produced. I guess in the case of Turing, <laughs> he had so many different types of brain, if you like, that he could combine these areas with single author papers. But nearly all his papers were single author, essentially, even the ones you haven't heard of. He didn't really collaborate very much. I think he wrote one, I think, with Max Newman, but virtually everything else is single author. But he was brilliant enough that he didn't have to collaborate, whereas sadly I'm not. So. And yes, I don't know how many single author papers we get these days now, if any. Do you think that the recent attempts to make amends, putting him on the 50-pound note, the pardon, the statue, do you think that they go far enough? 
Well, I think he should be Turing's family uh, forgiving the government because, you know, if Turing wasn't doing anything wrong in the scheme, I mean, obviously it was illegal then and times changed, but it's just yes, a sad situation. I've got my £50 notes, uh, which I collected <laughs> with some difficulty, I might add, because it was all during COVID and I had to go to the bank three times before they'd give me some £50 notes. And I don't know what's going to happen now with the sad state with the Queen dying and so on, whether it's going to be new £50 notes with Turing and the King Charles on or whether you know that will be it. Sadly, I've hardly used money <laughs> during the time of COVID. So although I've got my £50 notes, they're uh, framed <laughs> in my office and I'm unlikely to use them. But I think all these are nice things to have happened, and it certainly is a snowball effect, isn't it? But once you get to a certain level, then the next thing happens, and you become more and more in the public consciousness, and then more and more things like that can happen. I mean, there was a programme on the BBC where they were voting for the most important person ever, and Turing won that. I mean, I guess he was fairly British-based, but this was looking at all areas, you know, people like David Bowie and music and so on. So, and in the end, well, it was Chris Packham, I think, who gave a wonderful sort of oration on him, who again, I think, is on the that sort of area of spectrum of mentality as Turing. Uh, and he gave this amazing talk, basically just holding up his smartphone and saying, you know, you're all holding a Turing machine in your hand. <laughs> you know, he's going to live on and you're, you're all remembering him because you're holding a Turing machine. <clears throat> so, yes, I think when you get things like that happening, it's amazing that. It's going to continue, basically. If something could bring Alan Turing back to life for five minutes, what would you say to him? Well, I suppose I'd want to know about the quantum ideas he was having. I think I'd like to know about the things that weren't written down. So I'd like to know what he talked to Shannon about. <laughs> yes, I'd like to know what his ideas on quantum were. And was he starting to think about quantum computing or just quantum effects? You know, that would be really interesting to know some of those things that never got written down. Well, it's been a fascinating time. It's been wonderful talking with you about this. And I'm just struck by how inadequate I feel to do justice to Turing's name, but he has certainly influenced me so much that I had to go and find you to be able to do this interview to get this idea of just how much Turing had shaped our modern world of computing mathematics. And you have certainly done that for us. Is there anything else you'd like to draw attention to for our listeners to follow and learn more? Of course, we'll have a link to the Turing Guide. Anything else you want me to refer them to? Well, obviously, yes, the, the Turing Guide would be great because uh, I get a small amount of money. Uh, I get about 25p per copy, just so you know, <laughs> so, uh, which is about 25 cents because uh, of the, the way the pound is at the moment. But yes, I mean, if anyone wants to go and learn about Turing in Oxford, there's a YouTube recording of that talk. So I'd be happy to give a few extra links of things that I've done since the Turing Guide like that, basically, yes, YouTube videos and slides and so on. So I can certainly send those to you. Uh, yes, you're very welcome to add them to this podcast. Thank you. We'll put those in. Well, Jonathan Bowen, thank you very much for coming on AI and You. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the talk. Thank you. That's the end of the interview. There's a link to the Turing Guide in the show notes and transcript. So if you could bring Alan Turing back to life for five minutes, what would you want to ask him or say to him? In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, Baidu, roughly China's equivalent of Google, 
has revealed a design for a robot car from their electric vehicle firm Jidu. It has advanced design features including a steering wheel that retracts beneath the dashboard when it's in autonomous driving mode and LiDAR sensors that expand and retract from the hood. It has AI in the cabin that can communicate with passengers using voice recognition and has hardware from NVIDIA that can deliver up to 254 trillion operations per second to manage the onboard computing requirements. Kind of hard to remember now that there was once a time when cars were engineered primarily for transportation and not as mobile data centers. Baidu says that it will be available for purchase in 2023 for delivery the following year. Their CEO claims that this is going to take market share away from Tesla and that they are one generation ahead of them. So, just a bit of commentary now about one of the common discussions about what computers and AI do to our knowledge and expertise. A lot of people maintain that it's a problem that we lose our skills at doing things like map reading when we get tools like GPS or SatNav that we have come to rely on for doing those things. And I just want to say that I hold a contrary view to that. Of course, I know how to read a map. In school, I learned how to compute lines of sight on a contour map, but I no longer care whether I retain that skill or not. As long as I have devices that can do that for me, I'm happy to use them. I use the navigation function in my car for the simplest and most repetitive journeys, because it is one less thing to think about. And also because sometimes it will pick a different route due to congestion or road closures. And everywhere I've used it, it has come up with a choice that is demonstrably superior to mine. I can rely on its estimate of when I will arrive to within a couple of minutes almost always. When I've used it for traveling across a freeway-less part of Los Angeles, it's often changed its route several times along the way in response to changing traffic conditions, improving the time that I would arrive hugely. But to address the question of losing that skill when a computer does it, I don't mind that happening, because I can use my brain for other things then. If we'd taken that approach to begin with, we'd still be rubbing sticks together to make fire. I would have been learning how to put shoes on horses or cobble footwear in school. Every scientific advance that the human race has made has been built upon earlier work done by other people, which represents thinking that we no longer had to do or no longer had to do as intensely and brilliantly as they did. And so I want to see what happens next, when we don't have to think about things that computers can do for us now. I have as much nostalgia as the next person for skills like navigating a library catalog, but the simple fact is that if Google can find an answer in a second that would otherwise take me an hour in a library, that is 59 minutes and 59 seconds of my life that can be used for something else, something that Google cannot do. The only argument that seems to be made in favor of retaining these skills is the possibility of being stranded on a desert island with no access to computers or the internet. I would say if that happens, you have bigger problems but also that it is so unlikely to happen that it is a very suboptimal use of your time to spend it retaining skills that are only useful in that situation. There is, of course, another argument that these skills exercise parts of the brain that can be useful for other things, so it's kind of like going to the mind gym. So that map reading, for instance, strengthens the spatial visualization part of the brain. I'm quite confident that there are other activities that can provide that mental exercise that aren't so readily replaced by computers. Anyway, that's the end of the commentary for this week. Next week, my guest will be Handel Jones, a Silicon Valley technology consultant with expertise in geopolitics, who has a new book out about 
China's artificial intelligence, progress, strategies, and goals, which we will be discussing at great length. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment, and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You, and see more videos and articles at aiandyou.net. That's a i a n d y o u dot net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.